welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today is sitting in Tokyo. Would you like to introduce yourself, Ian? Yes, hi, Nick. My name is Ian Haydock, and uh, I was born about 57 or so years ago in Blackburn in Lancashire in the UK. Um, I've lived about two-thirds of my life in Asia. I actually grew up in Hong Kong, and I've been living now in Tokyo, in Japan, for about 25 years. Um, I work for a, a UK PLC in the information sector, and uh, all of which makes me feel like I'm not very qualified to be on your podcast. Um, as far as gomology goes, I'm very much a, uh, a curious onlooker and a bit of a dabbler, really. But I'm very pleased to be here, and uh, thanks for inviting me. In this setting, though, you're kind of my man on the ground in an area that is extremely interesting, because you do get out and about a bit, and you do have an interest in the gomological scene of things. Yes. Well, we've been connected, I don't know how many years now, on uh, Instagram, and uh, you know we have our occasional discussions discussing the merits of various uh, 80s bands and so on you know some of our views might differ but uh, you know that's fine um but yes i'm happy to help you out understanding what the scene is like in japan and i think it's it's quite interesting and um i know you're quite interested in several japanese brands and in fact you've introduced me to quite a few niche japanese brands that i didn't even though existed, even I'm living here. So, you know, hopefully it's been a bit of a, a two-way traffic between us. And, uh, you know, I've been very glad to to uh, link up with you and, and talk about things, Japanese gomology and other things as well. Because from the outside, um, looking at the Japanese scene, it's kind of spelunking in a dark cave unless you really go deep into things. Mm. And... At least up until recently, uh, Japanese brands haven't been super good at presenting themselves to the West. Mm. So you have companies that will import stuff from Japan. Uh, you have obscure Japanese auction sites, uh, which may or may not let you translate them using Google Translate, mm. uh, may or may not reply to emails. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so if you've been wanting to buy something, you have to sort of basically have someone on the ground there who mm. will help you. Yeah. But w what's it like when you are there? Yeah, I think the language uh, is a big issue because I think once you're actually here and if you have some capability in the language or have somebody that can help you understand the language, particularly written you know finding your way around websites and so on you mentioned some of the auction sites here um you know a whole new world really opens up because i think when you're outside you really can't kind of get into that and as you mentioned some of the brands here uh, you know have very little exposure to the outside world and i think part of the reason is really because japan itself is you know it's a whole universe in itself it's it's you know a reasonably large country 130 million or so people. Um, so the internal domestic market, you know, is really very sizable. And I think there are a lot of brands that are perfectly happy and can survive 
on on a business uh, scale, you know, very well just by serving the domestic market. So, you know, I don't think there's always a need for them to really push um, outside of Japan. But of course, I think the internet has changed things a lot because obviously people even outside the country now can access a lot more information than they used to be able to. Um, even if it's in Japanese, you might not be able to sort of find your way around, but you can see, oh, well, you know, here's a cool denim brand or, you know, here's something else that actually exists and you can actually find that. Whereas before, you know, you just wouldn't know about it at all. So, um, yeah, I think the language is, you know, is probably a big barrier. And um, there are sites here, Mercari, probably you know of, um, I think it exists in a few other places in the US, um, I think. And, um, you know, that's huge. And it's kind of a person-to-person flea market site, essentially. Um, it's kind of like eBay, but without the auction aspect. So it's just direct sales. And the Japanese version of that is just absolutely enormous. You know, it really is huge. And it's, it's taken off here because I think people really like the idea of being able to declutter their homes which often are not that large so you kind of have to keep things reasonably tidy um and then you can sell stuff you know instead of just putting it out for recycling or you know throwing it away you can actually you'll find somebody that wants to buy you know whatever it is that you you want to put on there and i think the whole kind of philosophy of that and the whole idea of it is is you know really appealed to um people in japan and it's just absolutely enormous here i was just amazed at you know how large it is and how much stuff you can actually get on there it's interesting because i think previously there was a lot of use of consignment shops okay mm. use of agents to ship stuff outside japan you mean or well more that uh, if you had stuff you didn't want you'd hand it in at the consignment shop and okay. then sell it so it was a sort of secondhand shop where the shop owner didn't actually own their own stock yeah yeah okay no those they do still exist and i would say if you're looking at the the used market or secondhand market for clothes those i i would say are the other big kind of factor within japan um within the secondhand market so there are quite a number of very large chains here. And these chains, again, are only existing within Japan. You know, they don't have any outlets at all outside Japan. Um, and their sole business is actually dealing with secondhand clothes. So we've got one near us and, you know, we use it fairly often. So if we've got stuff that we want to get rid of, we will take it to the shop. They'll appraise it. You know, they might take an hour or two to appraise it. I'm not quite sure how they appraise it, you know, whether they do have like a large database of items or, um, you know, just have staff that are very familiar with <clears throat> the value of things. Um, and then they'll give you a bit of money for it. So it might not be very much. It might be the equivalent of, you know, a few pounds. But their whole business is they will take that in, then they will resell it in the shop you know, obviously at quite a substantial markup. So compared to what they paid you for it. Mm. So, you know, I've seen pieces that I've taken in that are selling for probably, you know, 20 times the price that they gave you because, you know, that's <laughs> that's how they make the money. But yeah. the thing is that that end price, even though they are um, 
marking that up that level it's still much cheaper for somebody buying from that shop than it would be buying new you know so um and i think the other thing to note about these shops is how nice they are you know it's not like a kind of an old um charity shop you know they're very smart uh, very well organized very well laid out everything's categorized by you know style um, color and so on and they're very nice places to to go shopping you know and uh it's obviously a business model that seems to be successful because um, there's some chains that you see them opening new places all the time, you know. So I, I think it's a really interesting kind of model, you know, that exists here like that. <clears throat> it strikes me that they see an actual value above items being just a secondhand piece of clothing and that that might be why the shops are more appealing because they actually feel they are dealing in stuff of value mm. as opposed to a charity shop, which is might be just knocking out cheap stuff. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. And I think one other factor that plays into this kind of model, if you like, is that secondhand stuff here tends to be in extremely good condition. So the stuff that you see in these shops, it's not been warm to death it's not full of holes you know it tends to be in extremely good condition and i think that reflects the fact that people in japan tend to look after their stuff fairly well uh, they do tend to change things fairly frequently um and yeah i've been amazed although it's it is obviously used nearly everything is just in fantastic condition um, so I think that's another factor that really makes this whole system work really very well. Does that indicate that are they um, tend to be sort of really hardy consumers or is there a collector mentality or why are they sort of selling stuff which is almost not used? Mm. Um, <clears throat> I think part of it is probably wanting to keep up with obviously changing styles and the other thing is um i think people do like new stuff it's as simple as that um <laughs> i mean besides clothes there are other similar shops that handle old electronics goods as well that work on a similar sort of system and you know they're just absolute treasure troves um of you know if you're interested in you know, 90s uh, portable CD players or, you know, old hi-fi, <laughs> which I actually am. <laughs> so um, you can find all this sort of stuff. Again, you know, the prices are generally fairly low, really good condition. Um, but yeah, if you sort of look at in a broader sense, it's obviously driven by, you know, the consumer society. So people are are updating their stuff and, and swapping it out, but at least you do have an outlet for for the old stuff um, that a lot of people are interested in picking up. You know, so it is very encouraging to hear that that even say old stereos and stuff are still being circulated because to me anything that is still being used and circulated and wanted mm. is not garbage. Yeah. Whereas if there's no demand and no one wants it, well then it is garbage. 
No, and I think the particularly with the old electronics goods, um, you know, some of it just goes on forever. And I do have one or two 90s era uh, CD players made in Japan, fantastic quality, and they just they just carry on forever. You know, they're so well made. And it seems such a shame that this is something that would have perhaps been thrown away or got rid of that, you know, still has a useful life in front of it and still, you know, still can be used. And I think it's, I think it's great. Well, apparently CDs are the new vinyl now, so they are <laughs> making a comeback. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Time to dig out the old Oasis CDs again. <laughs> not, not Oasis. No, no, well, we better not get into that discussion again. <laughs> Um, it's interesting what you said about uh, the internet having sort of opened everything up because I was that's what I've been thinking as well but then I've been reading the Heritage Post which is a German magazine which covers in detail sort of what happens in Germany and the countries around it mm. and there's clearly a very sort of closed European scene with lots of brands I'd never heard about and who obviously make no overtures towards the west or the east or anywhere else mm. but they're sort of happy in their little environment mm. Mm. um i mean japan is a bit better in that respect at least for the larger brands that are exposed to the west um, but still not really i mean 25 years or so since the internet uh, started taking off for consumers it's mm. still yeah yeah that's right quite. and it's also interesting that you're talking about small brands maybe coming into the, into Japan or Japan being a big market. Um, since I've been living here, I've actually discovered a number of very small UK brands that I'd never heard of. And I'd only discovered them since being in Japan because for some reason they have got a, a following or kind of a niche position. And just sort of going back to when I, my interest really in the whole sort of garmology area was sparked. Um, I was trying to think what really kicked it off. And I think it was a jumper that my wife, uh, my wife's Japanese, she bought for me at a secondhand shop, a really nice um, fine merino wool sweater by a UK brand called John Smedley which you may may know of, Nick. Um, I'd never heard of this company at all um, in my time living in the UK or my family had not heard, it, heard of it. Um, so I started doing digging, you know, into this company and then found out that, you know, wow, this company was set up in, I think, the late 1700s, John Smedley um, in Derbyshire, and I started doing all this sort of research and found out, you know, this is a small, I think it's still family owned, all of these generations later. Um, and this is a knitwear brand that's quite popular in Japan, which I'd never heard of at all. And I think it's really interesting how, you know, you need to come to Japan to <laughs> discover some of these small UK brands. And there's, you know, there's numerous other examples as well. Um, <clears throat> that I can think of. Um, another one might be um, Lavenham, which you probably know, the sort of the quilted jacket yeah. 
I think originally made brand, horse yeah. horse quilts and things like this. Really popular in Japan. You see a lot of um, salarymen, you know, wearing them in the winter. So it's it's very interesting how these kind of small brands have somehow carved out this this position in in Japan. And I don't quite know what it is. Whether it's a perception about Englishness or you know English style that there seems to be perhaps in Japan. Um, but I just found it fascinating. I imagine there's a certain feeling that it's odd and exotic in the same way that I would view things from Japan, uh, given that, I mean, quality differences, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe uh, John Smedley does make some really high-end knitwear. Yeah. Uh, but I'd imagine it's the Britishness of it, the traditions of it. Mm, I think it is. But, but I think for a lot quite a few British brands sort of becoming popular in Japan is almost a business move because there are brands that are almost non-existent in the UK who have their own shop in Tokyo. Yeah. So (laughs) they're a British brand in as much as the brand is located in Britain, but their only shop is in the Tokyo, which is wow. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, there's quite a few examples, I think, like that. John Smedley being one, they've got a shop, I think, in Ginza, which is like the swankiest um, shopping area in the centre of Tokyo, where you will also find other shop, shops from the likes of uh, Hunter, you know, the Wellies people, mm. um, and so on. Um, so and then I guess on a large scale, obviously you've got the British brands um, that have been, you know, for a long time, very well established in Japan. People like Paul Smith, um, Nigel Caborn, of course. Um, and I think probably most, I don't know what the actual figures are, but I would guess that, a, you know, a large part of their business for those brands is from Japan. And, uh, you know, I think again, it's this kind of Britishness of the, the brand that does appeal to people. I think Cabourn is quite special in that respect because he's got one shop in London and I think there's six shops in Tokyo. Okay. Yes. And that that is the Cabourn shops. Mm. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And, uh, you know, that shows how important uh, Japan is to them. And I think you'll also find that a lot of pieces, um, certainly Paul Smith, um, in fact, this hoodie that I'm wearing at the moment, Nick, is a Paul Smith hoodie but made in japan and it's a very thick knit hoodie it's absolutely beautiful again bought from a second-hand shop for not very much money <laughs> but um you know so i and i think cable is the same you know they do quite a lot of their manufacturing or produce pieces in japan as well you know they have agreements with with local companies and so on so uh yeah that that's been a real um interesting thing to was you're here and living here to to pick up these things. The Cabon has his own. Uh, I think it's the main line uh, uh, selection, which is made in Japan, which is sort of Cabon Japan. And then he's got the authentic, which is British made, and Libro, which is Hong Kong made. Okay. Mm. So I, I think the whole Japanese bit is a, really a, an entirely separate company. Mm. But, um, yes. Yeah. Couldn't say for certain. But it is interesting though how these things find their way around the world. Um, I can imagine it must be really strange for someone selling a pair of worn-out boots on one of these things to suddenly receive an email from Norway. Yes, uh, 
<laughs> I wish to buy your own boots. Can you send them to Norway? <laughs> well, you know, it, it works both ways because, strangely enough, I was in a, a rummaging through a, another uh, second-hand shop the other week, and what did I come across? But two Royal Mail jackets, brand new. Um, I think new old stock, you know, with all the high vis um, and stuff from the UK Royal Mail, and they were sitting in this second-hand shop in the suburbs of Tokyo. And I thought, you know, how on earth did they, <laughs> did they get there? Um, you know, it was quite remarkable. And you come across this, this stuff all the time. It is strange because at the same time that Japan has been building up a what, huge industry, making high-end clothes and the sort of heritage, authentic type of stuff, denim and whatnot... I mean, they have been vacuum cleaning around the world, sort of bringing everything they could find back to Japan, mm -hmm. is my impression, especially with regards to denim and workwear. And Yes, I think there is obviously some of that <clears throat> going on. But uh, I think, of course, in the whole workwear and uh, amikaji, as you call it, the American casual area, you know, you've got so many of the, the smaller niche Japanese brands that I, I'm sure you're well known, Nick, but... Um, you will see these also cropping up in, in second-hand shops here. And, um, you know, again, beautifully made, but essentially reproductions of old classic styles, you know, military styles. And um, you do come across some very nice things, you know, for example, a beautiful old kind of sweatshirt, um, you know, with the V. And... Um, but then, you know, it's beautifully made, but then you'll see on the back, it'll have some huge kind of stenciled thing, you know, US Air Force, you know, 944 Squadron or whatever, which, you know, some people might like, but it's it's not for me. But, uh, you know, it's it's a beautifully made piece. Well, that's all, all part of the reproduction thing, isn't it? So you want things that are reproduced so accurately down to almost the person who might have worn the original piece once upon a time. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I'm not a huge fan of stuff marked with sort of US Army and things myself. Um, uh, no, no, I'm with you on that one, yes. So, what sort of interest, where did your interest in clothes come from? Uh, I think probably, it's not something that I would say has been a lifelong thing. Um, I think, again, another spark for it was probably... Besides discovering some of these small brands in Japan, I think another one was probably, it was actually in the UK and, you know, I'm a great rummager, you know, so I was, I was TK Maxx, I think, in the UK when we were over back for the summer a few years ago and I found this, what I thought was this fantastic Parker, um, really nice material. Um, so I thought, yeah, this is nice. I will get it. It wasn't too expensive. And again, kind of sets you off on a journey. So after getting it back home, um, I found out it was made of ventile, which I know you do have your opinions on, Nick. Um, <laughs> um, and it was made by a brand called Pretty Green, which I believe is Liam Gallagher, who has his Back to line, Oasis. Back to Oasis, yes, yes your favourite <laughs> band. 
Um, so putting what views you may have on those things aside, I just thought it was a beautiful garment and I absolutely loved it. And again, this kind of set me off on a whole journey, you know, looking into Ventile, where did it originate from? So that takes you back to the whole, you know, the northern textile industry, Manchester. And then I think, in fact, that was the first thing that led me to your blog, Nick, because you, I think this is going back a few years now, but I think you had a lot of articles and commentary and so on about Ventile. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that's where I discovered you, actually, was, was from that when I was sort of going down the rabbit hole. Um, so <laughs> that's Number one Ventile critic. Yes, that's yep. right. So <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, it was just something, again, that it sets you off on a journey and it kind of sparks your interest in, in different things. And um, it was also interesting because the material came from the north of England, you know, which is where I'm from originally. And my family on my father's side does have quite a strong connection to the textile industry. So my father spent his whole career in textiles um, in the UK, in the north of England. And his family going back, um, I think it was, he had quite a few uncles and they had actually set up a mill um, in Blackburn and so he went into the the family business and they had a number of mills in and around Blackburn so this is before I was born my father went into the business there and you know his experience was very interesting because whilst you know I'm talking probably 50s and 60s here when he was working there and so he experienced the whole um, I guess, you know, decline of the UK textile industry over that period. And um, again, when I was back in the UK a few years ago, um, you know, I had an absolutely fascinating chat with my dad about um, his experiences within the industry and working for the family, the family mill in Blackburn. And, um, you know, it was, I wish I'd recorded it. Unfortunately, I didn't. Um, it was just something that happened, you know, over breakfast one morning. But it was just absolutely fascinating. And then um, after my father passed away a few years ago, myself and my brother, particularly older brother, we did quite a lot of digging into the family history and so on and, uh, <clears throat> and unearthed quite a lot of photographs of some of the, the factories and sites and so on. And um, we do have a wonderful photo of... Uh, it was a works outing, actually, to, uh, to Blackpool... Um, they all went to this big place in Blackpool called the Winter Gardens. I don't know if you've heard of it or even if it still exists or not, but uh, it's like a no big, idea. a big hall place. And we have a picture of um, you know several hundred staff um, that there were you know at that time, all on a factory outing to, to Blackpool. You know, so um, so all of this kind of happened. I guess you know I was born in '64, so that was kind of the you know, the beginning of the end in many ways for the the UK textile industry as it had been, you know, up to then. And um, so, yes, my father kind of worked through all of that period. And, of course, at that time, that was, I guess, from the mid-60s onwards maybe was the time, 
ironically enough, when Japan was was kind of coming up in the textile world. So, you know, they were having to face new competitors like, uh, I think, Torre, possibly, you know, at that time, big materials manufacturer, which still exists today. Um, so now, of course, you know, things have shifted away from Japan to elsewhere. So it's, you know, it's this never-ending cycle. But yeah, absolutely fascinating. It's hard to imagine, really, what the textile industry must have been like in the UK in in the heydays. There must have been just over sort of around 100 years where it was the sort of world hub of innovation and production mm. and now almost wiped away. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, because when you look at some of the photos um, of the, that period, it's just astounding the amount of activity and the number of mills that there were. And I think at the, the largest, um, the Haydock mill, I think had a couple of hundred looms, you know, it was fairly sizable. Um, and I, of course, was too young to know this, but I think my older brother had actually visited the site uh, where my father was working. Um, and he said the, you know, the noise was just unbelievable. <laughs> As you can imagine with all, if you've heard just one loom working, but if you can imagine several hundred going at once, you know, absolutely um, massive racket. And um, so the offices actually had to be soundproofed um, because, you know, it was so noisy. So, you know, the management offices were very heavily soundproofed. Um, and he remembers going into the office and then opening the door and just being, you know, hit with this wall of sound and... Um, if you do get the chance to go to the north of England, I mean, there are quite a few um, museums, you know, obviously around the textile industry. And Manchester has a very big, um, <clears throat> I forget the actual name, but it's, it's essentially a science museum, but they've got a lot of um, equipment from the textile era there, including old steam engines and a few working looms and so on. And... Um, you know, it's absolutely fascinating to, to go and visit and just get a sense of, you know, what it must have been like in the heyday. I did visit a working mill in Leeds a few years ago. And what was really interesting there was that it was fully modernised. but I could recognise every operation from the production of Harris Tweed. So it was just sort of the same processes evolved. But the interesting thing was that they were working flat out three shifts all the time they had so much business mm. so it's not as if there wasn't a demand for british woven fabrics it's just that there was no one left to make them no i think there very much was because i remember my father saying that you know their particular mill used to export to um india i think they used to do fine cotton goods and he said in the latter stages, it was also exporting um, to the Middle East um, cotton for um, headwear in Middle East countries. And um, yeah, so they had, I think, quite a large export market uh, at that time, for sure. And Manchester is, of course, now also producing cotton fabrics again, after having been closed down for so many years. Mm. There's a company called English Fine Cottons who make using extremely modern equipment, mm. making extremely high quality. Yes. Which is kind of history coming back to repeat itself. Yes. And, after the you know, even in Blackburn, you've seen a few places. There's an old um, 
very old factory there. I think it's called Cookson and Clegg, um, which dates Grant's, uh, yeah factory, dates yeah. back to the 1800s, and I think they originally started making out military uniforms. I think like wall uniforms. Um, but I know that's being used by a number of um, UK manufacturers now. I think not only community clothing, but also some other people are using that facility. I think now as well, people like um, Hebtroco, I think, and um, possibly one or two others as well. So it's, you know, it's obviously still on a very small scale, but, you know, at least you've got kind of a, a rebirth, I guess, happening, you know, on a to some extent um, in that market. It was quite interesting to see when I visited Cookson and Clegg and saw their sort of storerooms and previously made garments and so forth, the range in sort of perceived quality and standing of the brands they were making for. Oh, really? Because there was the really high-end stuff. Right. And there was also stuff that is sort of reasonably priced. Mm. Mm. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a nice modern factory, though. So I think the Cookson and Clegg name has been sort of <laughs> moved from an old place to a new place. Right. But uh, okay. Oh, well, you've done know. one better than me. Then you've actually been there. I've never actually <laughs> been in there. <so. laughs> no, I spent uh, spent the best part of a day there. It was very very pleasant people working. Mm, mm. So it was a good experience. We were sort of in the in the used ecosystem in Japan. Mm. Um, where, whereby they're importing lots of vintage from outside Japan and at the same time reproducing sort of their own authentic vintage and other quality garments. Do, do you ever visit any of the of the brand name shops? Uh, occasionally, yes. But, um, you know, I'm very much into these second-hand markets. So I have been to a, a few of them in center of tokyo so there are a number of some of the smaller japanese brands have their own flagship stores and um i have visited some of those and you know it's absolutely beautiful stuff um but they can tend to be at the higher end of the market um we'll put it that way um but usually the smaller brands do have their own outlets and not necessarily in Tokyo. You can go outside as well. Some of them are based, um, you know, in smaller places, more in the countryside. But usually they will have some small um, outlets for new clothes within Tokyo somewhere, yes. Yeah. Now, a topic I have seen discussed a few places is prices in Japan. Because it seems that you've got the Japanese prices... And then you've got the European prices or American prices. And for the same item, they seem very different. Mm. And I've heard mention that that is due to the fact that in Japan, people are very much more accustomed to buying, paying retail prices and sales are not a big thing. Whereas in the West, we kind of expect discounts or imminent sales. Mm. So the retail price is like this sort of yeah, well, we're not paying that, but just mm. hang on for a bit. Okay. How do you think the retail prices compare between Japan and uh, elsewhere? What's your perception of that? I think the retail prices are very much marked up in the West okay. to compensate for the fact that they will have to discount things. Mm. Yes, I think it's not something that I've really looked in a lot of detail at, but 
I think you will find there are sales generally. Um, in Japan, I would say that, you know, there's not an aversion to having a sale. You will see them quite often um, across all different kind of sectors, not only in clothes. Uh, particular times of year, you will get sales. So, for example, New Year is the big holiday here, calendar New Year, where you will see almost everywhere will have a, a New Year's sale. And then you do get other sales throughout the year, at certain times of the year, particularly in the um, summer in August, it's quite a big holiday period. You sometimes get sales around then. So, you know, I wouldn't say there's an aversion to sales really here. Um, but yeah, I think there's maybe not an expectation that things will be discounted. And I think it, the practice probably does vary by brand, you know, how much they will have regular sales or not. Um, you know, I think it depends on their own policies, really. Um, and I think I would say here that there is quite a lot of price sensitivity. I think if you look more widely, economically, um, growth in salaries here has been very flat or very minimal for quite a few years. So I would say that there is a very strong cost consciousness here. And I think that's why you have seen the huge growth of you know, these sites like Mercari, because people are getting bargains, um, both selling and buying. So, you know, I think that really appeals to people's sense of uh, of saving money and, and getting a bargain, for sure. Hmm. I think part of the, the thing about sales was that there appears to be some sort of gentleman agreement that if two shops are selling the same items, they won't compete with each other on price, mm. but they may have sort of small sales for their local customers without entering a, into a sort of uh, internet death spiral right. of yes. diminishing prices. Yes, yeah. No, that might be true. Um, it's not something I can really uh, comment on. I'm very much in the, in the, the second-hand world. <laughs> I was hoping to confirm or de deny. No, but I'll, I'll have to do some more... Uh, <laughs> More studies for you, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting, though, the, the, the vibrant second-hand market, because that is something we're seeing increasingly now other places as well. I mean, these small ad sites are, are picking up and, and people are getting away from the mentality of just throwing away or donating and instead selling it, mm. which from a, an environmental perspective is is very good. Mm. Yeah, and it's, it's something that's been... Um, when you go into a second-hand shop here, when they're playing an announcement, you will quite often hear, you know, why don't you shop with us? It's good for the environment because you're buying something that's already been manufactured. It's already, already existing. Um, so I think some of the, the big chains here have kind of cottoned on to that environmentally friendly aspect of, of you know, shopping in that way. Now I know a lot of um, there's a lot of talk about the otaku uh, in Japan, the obsessives. Mm -hmm. Are you sort of um, secondhand searcher obsessive? <laughs> um, probably yes. I, I try not to be too much, but um, because you can guarantee that every time you go into a shop, you know you'll find something. But the challenge is always getting something in a style that you like color that you like and the right size so quite often these shops will have you'll come across something fantastic 
Um, but it's just slightly the wrong size, you know, which is kind of... <laughs> you can lose weight. You can um, lose those yeah, 40 pounds. Well, that's true. Um, <laughs> and that does happen quite often because, you know, you do tend to get kind of either very big sizes or small sizes in these shops. Um, so, um, but, you know, part of the fun is, is uh, you know, the chase, isn't it? You know, trying to find that little gem that's hiding away somewhere. That is a huge part of the fun. I think back with uh, a certain trepidation to uh, when I discovered charity shops over here about 12 years ago. And uh, I bought a lot of stuff. Uh, I mean, it was so cheap then. Mm. And it was just sort of painless. And I mean, I didn't need it all. Mm. Um and uh, certainly didn't use it all. A lot of it, I think, went back again. <laughs> but, I mean, if I had the sort of um, rich places to search like you do, uh, I don't know if I'd be able to cope with it. No, well, I, I sometimes think, um, you know, you should really try and come out here when it's possible, Nick, because I'm sure you would have a fantastic time rummaging through some of these shops. And, um, as I say, you can nearly always find something or other. Um, of interest and um, yeah you you would need to uh, to get a lot of excess baggage I think on the way back that's for sure <laughs> yes I can just see it this trip report from Tokyo yep uh, that was uh, 715 secondhand <laughs> shops <laughs> saw no interest in cultural ornaments or yeah. anything at all that's right. and one, oh. one other thing also just um, sort of while we're on the subject is that you do get a concentration of these shops in certain areas of Tokyo. So we kind of live slightly out to the west um, in Tokyo, but um, there's an area called Koenji, which is very famous for just being absolutely full of secondhand clothes shops. Um, and lots of them are, you know, you'll get your normal type of stuff, but a lot of them are like very specialized in, you know, you get the typical military vintage or surplus type stuff. Um, you know, others that are specialising in, uh, you know, vintage jeans or kind of 50s original uh, US Levi's for um, very high prices. <laughs> um, but it's really interesting how you get this concentration. In, and I've, I've no idea why, you know, how, how did it start? But if you go to an area like that, you can just spend the whole day, you know, going from one shop to another. And uh, I think you you would absolutely love it. It must be a sort of collaborative effort. Whereas if these shops were spread all over the place, they'd each get less visitors than if they sort of lump together and become an attraction. Mm. Yes, I think you're right. Yes, yeah, so you can just go there and, as you say, you know, walk around for the whole day. But I noticed from the way you describe the shops, you're also describing the sort of some of the like back to the otaku obsessive nature where people will sort of subscribe to subcultures within various styles, say the vintage military or the vintage denim or the workwear or the motorbike or the rockabillies. Or mm. uh, I mean, there's a lot of fascination with that from a western perspective mm. not least fueled by all the, the japanese specialist magazines mm. which sounds a lot dodgier than it is mm. these are just photos <laughs> of men wearing clothes um which gives the impression that it's a massive huge vibrant scene 
around all this. Mm. I mean, as someone living in Tokyo, do you see much proof of this? Yeah, I think it's um, something that I don't know what, what has caused that. I think it's a there is a, a great deal of interest here. I think in in details of things, um, you know, and really digging into something very sort of specialised or niche area. Um, and if you go into a bookshop, you know, you will see magazines on you know, really niche areas and, and topics. and But obviously, there's enough demand to keep them going. There's enough interest in that particular specialist topic. And I think one factor is probably just sheer numbers. You know, you do have a lot of people here. So, you know, Greater Tokyo, you're talking... Uh, what is it? Probably twenty six million, I think, something like that. So, you know, uh, what's the population of Norway? Is it um, probably five or six? Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you think of the numbers of sheer numbers of people, I suppose even you've only got a tiny, you know, fraction of a percentage interested in a particular topic, it still it still equates to quite a large number of people. Um. You know, maybe that's that's one factor. Um, but you do find, um, particularly with, you know, you're talking about interest in American culture and so on, you know, that's something that I found very interesting when I first came here. I was really surprised at how much kind of American influence and how much, um, you know, how prevalent it was really within the in culture in Japan. And you'll see plenty of Harleys on the road, you know, every day you'll see somebody riding a Harley, you know, wearing the full denim and leathers and, you know, wallet on a chain, you know, the whole thing, you know, the whole image. Every day you'll see somebody like that. So there is this real interest, I think, in that that particular area. And again, what's the reason for that? You know, I'm not really sure. I don't know. But, um, you know, it's, I think it's wanting to kind of delve into a topic and get into the details of it and you know, all the background and the history and so on. It's like a sort of reenactment thing, because when you mentioned the motorcycles, it reminded me uh, the last time I was in um, in Delhi, in India, and suddenly there came this massive parade of mainly American motorcycles past, and the juxtaposition of it was a really not a great area of Delhi, and all these shiny motorbikes with these guys all clearly all dressed up. It was just completely bizarre. Mm. Yeah, well, it's, you know, you will see similar gatherings here if you go out, um, you know, driving on the, the motorways here, you know, at, uh, you stop at a service station and, you know, you quite often see a, a group of motorcyclists, um, you know, on a trip together. So, um, but, you know, I, I think one of the things is maybe bonding over a shared interest. You know, if you've got a, I, th- I think it's the same anywhere. I think the UK is probably pretty similar. You know, you go to a vintage car meet, you know, everybody's got a similar interest. So, you know, I think part of it is is that. And uh, you can build that or you can share your interest with other people. Um, so, yeah, it is it's it is the whole sort of, as you call it, the otaku, you know, which is something that's become much more broadly known outside Japan, I think, now, because the, the amount of interest that there's been, for instance, with, you know, anime and manga and so on, which are hugely popular now outside Japan. 
um, which when I first came here, it was still very much, you know, within Japan and it was kind of a, a subculture. And, um, but now it's just, it's gone global. Um, so it's interesting how those things that used to be very niche interests have now, you know, broadened out much more widely. I have been talking about subcultures quite a bit with people recently, and the only sort of recent subculture I can think of is the anime manga Japanese style. So clearly a very successful export, well, that and Pokemon Go. <laughs> yes. Well, it has been. And, uh, you know, I think, again, it's down to the internet probably. It's now much more easily available, and there are sites that uh, specialize in translating uh, manga and so on into English. And I was amazed um, some years ago when we visited your part of the world, uh, Nick, actually, we <clears throat> went to Finland, which um, surprisingly from Japan is relatively close because you kind of just go over the top of the world. And it only takes about nine hours to fly to uh, Helsinki. Um, and in the airport there, we there were copies of a Japanese manga, you know, in Finnish that you could buy in the airport. And, uh, you know, my kids were saying, well, you know, look, you can buy Conan, you know, which is the name of this child detective uh, series, which is very, very popular here in Japan. You know, it was in Finnish. <laughs> it, was, it was quite remarkable. <laughs> now that you're living in Tokyo and have access to all the grade A uh, Japanese denim, where, where does your denim uh, sort of allegiance lie? Well, that's a good question, Nick, because there's so much choice. And I think, as you know, there are so many small manufacturers here as well as the perhaps more well-known names. Um, I do like, I think it was one of the first, you know, really proper pairs of jeans that I bought was probably Momotaro. You know, the peach. One of the big five. Yeah, the peach boy. Um, so I do have quite a strong affinity for them, I would guess. Um, but again, you know, you can find nearly all of the the major denim brands and some of the smaller ones available um, in second-hand shops here. But again, frustratingly, often not in the right size. <laughs> so it could be really serious. Curse, the, curse those previous owners. <laughs> um, and strangely enough, um, because my wife's from Osaka originally, and um, in my early days in Japan, we did travel around the so-called denim town area which is down in okayama which is not that far from osaka the kojima okayama area and um you must have gone past the town and i remember my wife saying to me at the time oh you know there's a town over there that you know it's really famous for denim um you know are you interested to have a look and i said no it doesn't really sound that interesting you know at that time i just wasn't <laughs> wasn't, wasn't interested she's, she's never <laughs> never let me forget it and now, of course, that I'm much more interested in denim, she says, you know, you had that chance to visit and, you know, we could have gone there, but you just, you know, you passed it up, you know. So I think we'll have to go down, back down there uh, eventually at some point and, you know, do a, a proper exploration, I think. 
probably the early days of the the sort of Osaka Five uh, and all that history. I mean, you could have been in there on the ground floor. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's it's interesting again how a lot of them came out of Osaka, and um, I think Osaka. It's I always kind of equate Osaka and Tokyo to the north and south of England. So, you know, Tokyo is London, Osaka is like Manchester, and I think there's similar differences in uh, culture, if you like. Um, you know, they, they each have their own distinct accents, so Osaka has a distinct accent. And Osaka is traditionally a much more industrial city. Um, their history is very much in trading, you know, a lot of merchants in Osaka. So I think there's some really interesting parallels you know, between the two. And maybe that's one reason that some of the, the big five denim companies came out of Osaka, you know, because it has that kind of history and background. And I think it's also been quite a base for textiles historically. Um, you will get some of the big textile companies, I think, originally came out of Osaka as well. So, yeah, maybe that's that's kind of a, an interesting parallel there. Sorry to interrupt, but at this point in the pod, you're probably wondering, where are the ads? I miss the ads. And you're right, there are no ads. I hate ads. If you'd like to buy me a coffee, though, you can go to buymeacoffee.com, enter Gomology, and it's easy. And, uh, yeah, let's continue on. It's interesting as well, because I, I find it difficult to know just how big these companies are. I mean, there's obviously companies that are large, but seem small, and then you have the sort of grail of uh, odd denim brands where it's just one guy mm. who has his own workshop. Yes. <laughs> but all making, at the end of the day, basically the same product, which tends to be replicated five-pocket mm. jeans. Yeah. And I realise I'm really setting myself up now for a flack from the <laughs> denim boys, but <laughs> for most people, the product is pretty much the same. Mm. Yeah, I think probably some of the differentiation comes from the, you know, the methods of making them, you know, the different um, textiles that they're using, slubbiness, all that sort of thing, uh, dyes and so on. Um, so I think that's where you'll see some of the, the interesting stuff come out. Um, so, yeah, th there's a lot of, um, I guess you could call it fairly minor variations along those sorts of lines. But yes, I mean, fundamentally, I guess, you know, they're making pretty similar products. Yeah, I do have a huge fondness for the Japanese denim fabrics and the characteristics and differences in them. Uh, there's been a lot of talk now of uh, Italian denim, which is much more environmentally friendly. It's much more perfect, um, guaranteed deliveries. <laughs> big roles so it's all sort of it's there it's perfect and it's it's good stuff but it has none of the none of the authenticity or the characteristics or the interest in it oh, oh. yeah i think that's probably where some of the japanese denim brands are you know they have that added extra you know it'll be something that's unusual um you know be it a, a dye or you know something that that's used and um I'm certainly not an expert in the field, but, you know, I can see how if, if you are really in deeply into denim like that, you know, how that that sort of differentiation can can be uh, attracted to you. 
it's kind of like so many other things i think i mean like you you like the ventile in your in your jacket uh, and you just sort of i'm sitting here now wearing a pair of oni jeans in what they describe as one of their secret denims mm. and uh, i mean that's you just know that's going to draw in a certain uh, type of wanker um, but but the, the the fabric is wonderful it's so coarse oh. and it's it's brilliant and it gives me pleasure to wear them and behold them and and feel it well i mean that's what it's all about isn't it you know at the end of the day it's something that's a, a joy to you know to wear or to yeah to handle or you know it's so important same thing with uh, with a good, uh, say, a good Harris Tweed. If I'm uh, sitting somewhere with idle time and I start really studying it, and at times like this I realise I should have a um, a magnifying glass with me, mm. because once you start zooming in and seeing all the different colours and all this, hugely fascinating. Mm. Uh, yet no one really wants to hear me talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm sure there will be an audience somewhere, possibly in Japan. Uh, yeah, I could. Yeah, that's, oh, I might find a market there because it's one of the one of the weird things about um, owning a huge amount of clothes that each have their own unique story or something you could talk about with each of them is that people sort of tend to cotton on to this and then they don't ask you about your clothes <laughs> because <laughs> right <laughs> they haven't got a few hours to spare afterwards. <laughs> I mean, they they're missing out on so many interesting topics. Mm. I don't know if you're at all the same. Well, I think, well, I think that was when we connected. I think some time ago, that was one thing that I found really interesting about you and your blog at that time, because you, you know, threw a spotlight on things that I didn't know existed, be it you know a particular brand or a particular type of material or. And I think particularly finding, to me, finding out about very small niche brands that you had no idea were even out there was, I just find fascinating because, um, you know, they're often family-owned companies. Um, they, you know, are doing quite unique things. And um, it's, re- but it's really hard to find out about them unless you have somebody, you know, like yourself that's sort of... Uh, to say throwing a bit of light on them um it can be just really difficult to find out about them so um certainly i found your uh, takes on things and you know the fact that you were talking about some of these you know very small companies uh, absolutely fascinating yes many of them are brilliant i mean i, I keep mentioning william lennon in derbyshire as a, an example of one of my favorites mm. ones I've been sort of hoping that you'd uh, stop by um, the Rolling Dub Trio uh, workshop and uh, sort of investigate it for me. Well, I know you're a big fan, yes, and I do like to uh, <laughs> see you wearing them in a lot of photos. <laughs> but they, I think, again, are probably very small. How did you first come across them, Nick? Where did you find them? I think I saw a photo on Instagram or something, and there was a guy who calls himself Indigo Shrimp who had a pair. Mm. And they just stuck with me because the shape was just so brilliant. And, I mean, part of the attraction is when you can't find information on something. Now, there's two ways that can go. You mentioned TK Maxx earlier. They carry a lot of brands which you can't find any information about because they've made them up themselves. (laughs) (laughs) That's not the good way. (laughs) 
then you have the good way where you can just find inklings of something and you realize it's good mm. but it's also terribly secret mm. there's a william william gibson book uh, is it pattern recognition that goes deeply into this mm. which is also a good book about mm. denim uh, William Gibson is quite savvy in the gomology field mm. and has picked up on stuff because in that book, uh, the main character is given a uh, denim jacket and then goes searching for this denim brand, which is th the phrase secret brand mm. is used because no one knows anything about it. You're just on this mailing list and you might hear about a drop mm. somewhere in the world and you have to queue up and you might be lucky enough to buy an article mm. Uh, now, where was I going with that? Uh, secret brands, odd stuff, uh, hidden stuff. You just know there's something good, but you have to go looking for it and you have to delve into it. And I mean, at the time, there was no one in the West selling those boots mm. and trying to get something from Japan, horrendously difficult. Mm. Um, and I think they're a very small company. I mean, it's uh, as far as I can see, I have... I know because of your interest, I kind of dug into them a bit. Um, but it does seem to be, you know, one workshop where they're producing things. Um, you know, I'm guessing in very small volumes. But, you know, as you know from first-hand experience, you know, absolutely beautifully made. And also in that curiously Japanese way, oddly named, mm. Rolling Dub Trio does sound like a reggae... Right. Sound system. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that might have been where they got the name from. Yes. Yes, I don't know where that but, comes from, no. But there is a, a sort of oddly odd thing there, though, with naming in in Japan, I think. Is that something you uh, come across? Yes, it is. Um, they, I mean, you see it across a lot of things. You know, you get uh, pop groups with, like, you know, where on earth did they? It's like a random word generator or something, uh, you know, come out with that name. Um, yeah, brands, you do, particularly very small brands, you do tend to see that. And But, you know, sometimes or quite often, I would say there is a reason behind it. So, you know, you will see somewhere an explanation of, you know, what the name means. But it might be a conjunction of two English words with um, some sort of meaning. Um, so, yeah, you do find some, some pretty unusual ones. And um, if I going back to William Gibson, uh, Nick, I think he's had some uh, lines with a, a Japanese uh, manufacturer. I seem to remember. I've come across them. Might be the real McCoys, is it? Uh, possibly Buzz Rickson's. Buzz Rickson's. That's it. Yes, and that's also down to one of his books, uh, where the main character wears. What is described in the book as a Buzz Rickson replicated MA1 jacket. Yeah. And the way he describes it in the book is so detailed yeah. that you'd imagine that that jacket did exist. Right. But at the time it didn't. Yeah. So it's only after the book and Buzz Rickson's realised that they were in the book. <laughs> yes. And then they have collaborated and made several garments, including the one described in the book. That's it's a fascinating story. It is, yeah. In fact, I've come across some of their stuff and i did find um it was a deck jacket i think uh william gibson you know because i think they're all black aren't they everything's just black they're all black and it, you know it's absolutely beautiful um but again it was just the wrong size <laughs> so uh couldn't snag it's that one quite painful to me because william gibson is one of my favorite authors and i would love to have one of those garments that he's sort of collaborated on mm. 
but I just can't get into that black um, colour of them all. Okay, yeah, I think they're all black, basically, yes, definitely. They're not really hitting it for me. Okay. But we mentioned a while back uh, that attention to detail, and Buzz Rickson is one of the companies that is super attentive to detail. Green McCoy's is another. Is that a sort of typical Japanese attention to detail meticulously reproducing these original garments yes i think it is it's it's very much um part of the the ethos i think and some companies i know pride themselves on you know perhaps um um recreating very very exactly um you know a vintage garment but to modern standards and you know the closer that it is um the better it's seen as you know the more authentic it is um, seen as so yeah i think that's very much part of it and um i think that stems possibly from having respect for the original garment you know you want to um try and reproduce it as closely as possible because it's you know if something's essentially seen as perfect why try and change it you know um so yes i think particularly for those sort of brands the american casual type of brands um they certainly pride themselves on getting things as closely as possible well i would say probably better because you know the materials and the workmanship of those reproductions are probably considerably better than the original (laughs) military garment was which wouldn't be certainly be to that high standard i don't think that is a very interesting take on it the fact that unless you make it the same as the original then you are making a de facto inferior product Mm. something to think about i see enough brands who have absolutely no problem in making inferior products Mm. (laughs) sadly it is uh is quite rare to see something that I am genuinely impressed by. Yeah. Sort of in closing, Ian, uh, I know you'll be out uh, checking out the local secondhand emporiums tomorrow. Um, yes, yes, certainly. That's, uh, you know, typical weekend uh, behaviour. What, what's your top five list of things you're sort of likely to be uh, drawn in by? Um. I've got a very wide range of uh, tastes and interests, so there's no particular type of garment that I like. I think, well, probably because my wife's always telling me that I have way too many jackets. I think I'm a jacket guy. I do like my jackets. (laughs) Um, But um, that's something that I uh, can't seem to ever get enough of. (laughs) I don't know why. Um, maybe it's a British thing. It's quite, quite, quite strange because we can only wear one at a time, but yet we need so many. Yes, exactly. For every every type of weather. Um, so yeah, I think those are probably my biggest interests. But as far as styles go, I think, well, as I get older anyway, I tend to try and keep things simpler in terms of um, styles and colour, so you know that automatically, I think, gravitates you towards the the classic military-inspired stuff. You know things like pea coats, deck jackets, that type of thing. So, 
I would say I've moved much more towards those those sorts of uh, clothes. So I'm always on the lookout for those. I think denim is the other thing that I'm always looking out for because um, there tends to be so much denim stuff in these secondhand shops. But you know, it's it's finding that gem. You know, that really nice pair of full count. You know, in your right size, the right cut, and everything. And uh, you know, it's a never-ending search. Yeah, yeah, interesting. You should mention Full Count. There are a couple of brands that I've been wanting to investigate. Full Count, Warehouse. Um, but again, they've never sort of come up in a viable state and position for me. Mm. Well, if you give me your uh, size, uh, Nick, I'll uh, keep a lookout for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll send down a, a body mould so that you can check right. out at the fit. Yeah, like a, like a bottom <laughs> half of a mannequin. You can. I'll take it with me to the shop. <laughs> I'm sure many would not consider that strange at all. No, I probably wouldn't get a second look, no. no. Okay, and um, I think we've uh, we've covered it now. Is there anything you'd like to mention sort of in closing? Oh, um, you know, the weird Japan kind of thing. So, you know, in the media outside Japan, they'll pick up some weird thing that's, you know, even we haven't heard that's happening in japan and they'll you know they'll pick it up and they'll run a story on it and you know it's just this kind of portrayal of japan as a, like a weird place and you know okay things maybe some things are different here but for the most part everybody's just you know normal people <laughs> living normal lives um and it kind of irritates me having living lived here for so long that you do kind of see this uh, you know it's, it's all weird japan stuff you know that sounds a bit like the the Higge thing that um, these British marketing people came up with, uh, where they launched the Scandinavian concept of Huga, which okay, is this yes. name no one can pronounce, but it yes. means the Scandinavian coziness, right. which is totally made up at, yeah. for us in Scandinavia, which is <laughs> really annoying and really? daft. Yeah, but you think it's the exoticness of Japan that makes they're just trying to sort of come up with weird stuff. Yeah, I think so, and. You know, there is this kind of image of weird Japan, isn't there, I think, generally. And, yeah, I mean, there are, there's no doubt that some things maybe you could... But, you know, any country you could do the same thing. Um, or, you know, maybe I've just got used to it. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there are some things that I still find hard to understand. I don't. Have you heard of pachinko? Do you know what pachinko is? No. It's kind of like a pinball. It's like a vertical kind of pinball machine. And you get these parlours that are just full of these machines in rows and people playing them. And you have to sort of control the the way that the balls come down uh, with this kind of knob. Okay. And um, the idea is you, you collect as many of these balls, as little metal ball bearings as possible. If you're very good at it, you can get extra ones that come out. And... So you get these called pachinko parlors full of like hundreds of these machines and they're all really noisy, you know, like a <laughs> pinball machine, right? It makes all the dings and and yeah. you go in, it's just, you know, it's absolutely, you know, it's like being in a mill in, you know, <laughs> 19th century Blackburn. <laughs> uh, absolutely deafening. Smoky as well. And that's just one thing that I, you know, cannot understand what, what is the appeal of it. Um, and people do 
make money because you know typical Japanese fashion gamble most forms of gambling are illegal okay. but with this if you collect like a big tray of ball bearings always around the corner from the pachinko parlor there's like a hole in the wall where you can um, exchange it for a a gift like a soft toy or something then you take that somewhere else and they'll then you can exchange that for money so uh-huh. indirectly you can actually earn money doing it and there are some people that actually make a living enough money um, to make a living as pachinko hustlers Pachink- <laughs> yes <laughs> but yeah these these places are just however long I live here I can't you know what's the appeal of it you know noisy smoky you know can't understand it yeah <clears throat> wow <laughs> okay so um, that was great thanks a lot and uh, bye bye thanks Nick it's been a pleasure thank you bye bye That's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye.